Good morning. I wanted to read to you a couple things before we begin, as we begin. About a year ago, actually a year ago, February of 2022, I received a, an email from uh, Dr. Timothy Mung, who is um, a friend and a contact in Myanmar. We don't hear anything about Myanmar in our news because no one in our world really thinks about all that's going on there in the Civil War. Uh, Timothy Mung uh, is the president of a Bible college in Yangon, the capital of the largest cities. He is very influential. Uh, anything that's happening in Christianity in the entire country of, of, um, of Myanmar, he knows about or he's connected to. He just has his fingers on everything. And so he'll send out updates periodically to us. Uh, I know him well because I've taught there, as you may remember, uh, and so he keeps me updated. This is actually one from, as I said, a year ago. But everything I'm reading is current. It just was the easiest way to take this particular email and read parts of it. Let me share with you, he says, the present situation in Myanmar. It's been 13 months since the military coup spoils this country. Uh, The sentence structure isn't always uh, exactly right. uh, But anyway, it's more than 13 months now. This is written a year ago, so two years ago. The civil war is worse and worse. The military jets... Uh, military uses jet fighters and helicopters to bomb civilians. It's been terrible. I cannot find words to express how horrible a situation we are in. The heartbreaking thing is the military, who should defend the citizens, they shoot, bomb, and kill the citizens. We're helpless. The poor civilians defend themselves with their homemade weapons. They are pitiful people, meaning they're worthy of our pity. They can't defend themselves. Near Kalimio last week, I've been to Kalimio a small town. Near Kalimio last week, a mother and her two daughters were raped and burned alive. They were Christians. Nearby that place, two men had their hands tied behind their backs and after being tortured, were burned alive. Three villages were burned down and people fled to the forests. The soldiers found them and shot all of them. People are homeless and foodless in the forests. They do not dare to return to their homes. In southern Chin State, the war is worse and worse. The people of two towns and the people of 21 villages fled to the forest last week. Many houses were robbed and burned up. Some people were arrested and tortured to death. In one town, all the roads are blocked and the people of the town are inside the town and have nothing to buy. There's nothing there to to live on. Even their water pipeline is cut off. How people will survive is beyond our imagination. We just pray for them. The fighting is all across the country, even in big cities. Bomb explosions, arresting the people, people being put into jail every day. Most of the people have no hope in Myanmar, no hope from outside of Myanmar, no help from the UN. I can add no help from the US, really. It seems that the world is closing its eyes to Myanmar. We, the Christians, encourage ourselves by the word of God and do the ministry as much as we can in the midst of trouble. I can tell you from other correspondents that he and all the believers that uh, he's involved with, they're trying to reach out to the Muslims, uh, the, uh, the Buddhists in their country, and, and uh, trying to preach the gospel and, and minister to others. He says, no freedom, no education, no rights. Many places have no food. For many people, no home, no job. Christians are crying. How long, Lord? He says, thanks for your concern, Brother Timothy. 
By the way, the estimate is as of July of 2022, and I couldn't get any more current information than July of 2022, over 23,000 people have been killed in this civil war. So you have suffering here at the hands of power-hungry men. The military is just opening fire on whomever they want, whenever they want, for no reason. Let's talk about the earthquake, most recent earthquake in the Turkey-Syria border. According to most recent numbers... 24,000 people have died because of the earthquake that's rocked the Turkey-Syria border last Monday. Suffering here is occurring because of natural disaster. People are suffering. And in some cases, maybe, maybe a human greed that led to insufficient building codes. So buildings just fell in. They're suffering all around the world right now. A little girl, 10 years old, here in Michigan... She's been waiting for years to be tall enough to get into a ride at a water park. This is a super loop speed slide at Zender's Splash Village in Frankenmuth. Any of you been there? I've not been there. Every year she's waiting to be tall enough. Recently she was tall enough. Unbeknownst to her family, she suffered from a rare heart condition. While going down the slide, this huge water slide... Her heart rate spiked, she went into cardiac arrest, and she died. Ten years old. You can imagine the suffering in her family. On January 11th, just a few weeks ago, 2023, local officials uh, notified a pastor of a 400-member congregation in Sierra Leone, Africa, to, lo- to vacate their building immediately. Get out of your church building. Just a few weeks ago now. The church building had stood for more than 15 years on land legally purchased in a Muslim-majority region. For five years, Muslims who were unhappy that the large Christian church stood in their community filed, this was five years ago, filed a legal case against the church. Church members were not allowed to respond to the court case. They could not defend themselves. They had no voice. In the end, church members could do nothing but watch as government workers bulldozed the building. Suffering because of religious persecution. Why do these things happen? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Now we're in a series in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, Peter addresses the topic of how slaves or servants should relate to their masters. And while dealing with that topic, he addresses some other topics as well, one of which is Christian suffering. So this morning, as part of our 1 Peter series, we're going to leave 1 Peter. And we're going to just consider the topic of suffering as, you know, as a whole, that, that topic. It is our habit here to work through books. Pastor's in the middle of a series in the book of Revelation, and I'm in the middle of 1 Peter. And so that is our habit. Once in a while, though, we'll kind of step aside and do with a topic, a theological topic or a, a practical topic, and that's what we're doing this morning. We'll consider the topic of Christian suffering. Folks, suffering is part of the fabric of our world. And Christians are called to suffer. Not just as a part of the the normal suffering in our world, but as believers, they are called to suffer. Let's pray. We'll look at a number of texts this morning.
Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be together today to worship you, to lift up our voices in, in song and praise, to, to pray to you, to talk to you, and bear our hearts before you. And Thank you now, Father, that you will speak to us through, the, through, through your word. Use it to minister to our hearts. No doubt there are many here right now who are suffering from some situation in their lives. A, a small thing that's nagging, doesn't seem to go away, or a large thing. And for those who aren't suffering today, there is tomorrow and the next day. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. Because of that, there's trials, difficulty, suffering, hardship, tears, pain, and death. Help us, Father, to have a biblical perspective on suffering and to honor you as we live our lives in this world. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We love him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Now, what we've done, because we're going to be bouncing, looking at many, many texts, is in your bulletin, there's the sermon outline. On the other side of that are all the verses we're going to look at. If you want to go from passage to passage in your Bible, wonderful. But if you want to look at that sheet, that cheat sheet, we won't judge you too much. It's provided so that you can, you can uh, kind of follow along more, more easily. Okay, number of things about suffering. First of all, suffering is part of living in a sin-cursed world. Genesis 3 was just read. Let me reread, and it's in your, your, your handout. Uh, Genesis three sixteen through 19. To the woman, he, God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. This is because of the curse, because of sin. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Right here we have interpersonal conflicts within the marriage relationship. And within all relationships, there are conflicts. And to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. So the earth is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of what you've just done. Pain you shall eat. Um, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In pain. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. You're going to plant corn and you're going to plant wheat and you're going to get weeds. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You're going to work for every bite is the idea. Till you return to the ground. Now we're talking about death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, uh, human beings are cursed to live lives in uh, lives of difficulty, hardships, and suffering. Human beings are going to experience agony in childbirth, interpersonal conflicts, pain, toil, and sweat in daily labor, disease and deformity, old age. The deterioration of the body and the mind. Physical death. And then all the sufferings that accompany all those things. This is just life in this world. You can't shake it until you leave this world. And for those of us who know Christ, there's a day coming and we look forward to it. But while we're in this world, we're going to experience suffering. And every one of our neighbors and co-workers and family members, saved and unsaved, this is what we're all going to experience because we live in a sin-cursed world. 
Speaking of sin's effects on all of creation, Paul says in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All creation groans. Folks, as we know, God controls everything. There are no renegade molecules. He's in sovereign control of every speck of dust that floats in the air and every place it lands. And as we know, God, in God's plan, he allowed sin to enter the world. Ultimately for his glory. Ultimately, he is glorified. He will be lifted up uh, in ways that he would never have been lifted up in a sinless world. His greatest glory will come because of how he's established and allowed the world to be established. However, it was Satan and Adam who actually polluted sins, uh, God's creation with sin. It was Satan and Adam who did that. And as a result, we live in a world that is driven by selfishness and arrogance and lust, a world dominated by labor, sweat, disease, death, and tears. One rebellious angel brought sin and suffering into creation. And one rebellious man brought sin and suffering into the abode of mankind. So when you're wondering why all these things happen, the list, the short list I just read, and the list gets longer and longer as you read the newspaper and hear the news and live your own lives. Why? Why all this pain, death, and hardship and trial? Why all the weeping? Why all the disease and death? Because we live in a sinful world, a sin-cursed world. It all started with Satan and then Adam. And we're not going to be released from this until we enter Christ's presence someday. There's one more consequence of sin that we need to consider, and that is the consequence of eternal punishment in hell. One more consequence. We're born sinners. We're conceived in sin. We sin in, in, in thought and action every day. We stand outside of God's family. We stand at war with God. And how can there be reconciliation? I'm not seeking it. Or I'm saying the person who's not saved isn't seeking it. But there is reconciliation. There is peace with God. There is forgiveness. God provided it. So because of sin, every human being stands accursed before God and an enemy of God. But Christ... Through Christ, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation. If you have entrusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't wait another second. Because you stand opposed to God. That's just one of the aspects of the curse of sin. If you've not bowed your knee, run to Him in repentance and faith. Don't wait. Because you have no guarantee of another breath. All right, so that's suffering in general. Now, we as Christians, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, there are additional dimensions of suffering for us. We're going to suffer in additional ways. We're going to suffer in all the ways described in the book of Genesis and all the ways that we see everyone else suffering. We're going to go through all of those, but there are some additional dimensions of suffering for us, those who know Christ. Look in your, on your, in your handout, John 15 We'll suffer because we're identified with Christ. John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, and the assumption here is the world does, right? 
If the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were one of them, if you were a worldling, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you're not a worldling, your perspective is different, your life is different, your priorities are different, everything about you is different. Because that's the case, I've chosen you, I chose you out of the world, therefore, because you're a different kind of individual, you're not a worldling, you're a follower of me. Because that's true of you, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did to death, they will also persecute you. So we're identified with Christ. And because that's true, if we're, if we're genuinely following Christ, that means a life of holiness. And if that's the case, we'll be treated in ways similar to how he was treated. John 7, Jesus says, The world hates me, he says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the primary reason the world hated Jesus was because he testified that its deeds were evil. The bottom line is Jesus, perfect, sinless, every word pristine and right for the situation, every motive right, holy, just, kind, God living among sinful men. And you would think that that kind of living, ethical, honest, kind, holy, just, You would think a person who lived that kind of life would be lauded. You know this guy, Jesus? Wow, he's a great guy. We all love him. He's perfect. And I mean perfect. But what's really true? How do men really respond? The world hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. The idea is that Jesus' holy presence in a sinful world does what? It brings conviction constantly to those who are living their own lives. So you would think, you know this guy, he's wonderful. As a, that's not it. Do you know this guy? I hate him. Because the more I hang around him, the more I realize how evil I am. And I don't like that feeling. Do you like that feeling? And as Christ followers, if we live holy lives... We're going to face similar responses. You would think that if you live an honest, ethical life in the workplace, you'd be treated in in a kind way. Don't expect that. Expect to get what Christ got. Because if your life is holy, you will be a source of conviction to people around you. And you should be. So that from that conviction, you might give them Christ. Talk to them about Christ. Give them the gospel. Note in your notes, uh, Colossians chapter 124, Paul says, Now I rejoice, now we're talking about ministry to believers. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of believers. And in my flesh, I'm filling up, this is an amazing thought, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church. So he's talking about ministry now to believers. And in his ministry to believers, Paul is saying, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now what in the world does that mean? First of all, the word afflictions here, the the Greek term, is never used in the New Testament to refer to Christ's sufferings on the cross. That's another dimension of this. 
This term is used of the afflictions and tribulations Christ experienced in his earthly life of ministry. Paul's point is that Christ did not exhaust all suffering, but left some for us. He left some for us, for his people. The sufferings we endure in the building up of one another. The sufferings we endure in in ministry. Build up the body of Christ. And they're a continuation of what he endured. And in that sense, they supplement or complete his afflictions. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. He says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Lightfoot says, the afflictions of every saint and martyr do supplement the afflictions of Christ. The church is built up by repeated acts of self-denial in successive individuals and in successive generations. They continue the work that Christ has begun. So as you minister to one another, as you're giving the gospel to others who are unsaved, and as you're ministering to the church, Each act of self-denial and ministry and selflessness is a filling up of the sufferings of Christ. You're doing what he did. If you stand for Christ in this world and live a holy life, if you present the gospel to those without Christ, and if you minister to God's people and sacrifice in all of that, you're filling up. Christ has left for us to fill up. You're finishing it. Remember when you do that, you're following Christ's lead. Gain consolation in the fact that by your ministry, by your suffering, you're suffering as Christ suffered. And gain consolation as well in the fact that by your suffering for the cause of Christ, you're part of a great heritage of believers who love the Lord more than comfort, prosperity, popularity, and even life. The bottom line is, when we suffer for the sake of the gospel and the sake of ministry, we're following Christ, filling that up, his sacrifices and his ministry, and we're following others who've gone before us. We're not alone in this. I'm the only one who's ever done this. No, we're not. You're not. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We see here that we will also suffer as believers in order to minister the gospel to others. Folks, God can use your trials and your struggles and your sufferings to help reach others for Christ. We often are so self-focused during those times. Look at what I'm going through. Little things that add up. You know, there are some trials that are just a pain in the neck. It's that mosquito that's always buzzing. It's always there. And some trials are life-altering. And sometimes in all of that, our focus is us. Well, look at Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 14. It's in your handout. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his Roman imprisonment, two-year imprisonment, What has happened to me has really, actually, served to advance the gospel. What's going on in my life right now in prison is advancing the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, Christians, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul was under house arrest for two years in Rome. For that entire time, he was handcuffed to a member of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard, this was 9,000 of the most elite soldiers in all of Rome. This was, these guys were the Navy SEALs of their day. They were the smartest, sharpest, well-trained men, highest-paid soldiers in Rome. One commentator says this, Paul, seeing that, he had, that there was no justice for him in Palestine, had appealed to Caesar, as every Roman citizen had the right to do. In due time, he was dispatched to Rome under military escort, and when he arrived there, he was handed over to the captain of the guard and allowed to arrange private lodging for himself. He wasn't in a dungeon for these two years. He had to pay for, basically paying for himself, an apartment to live in. He had to pay for it, come up with the money. Night and day, in that private lodging, Paul was shackled to a soldier with an 18-inch chain. I said this before, you've heard me say this. If you take from this, from the tip of this finger to your elbow, that's a cubit. And it's basically 18 inches. Most people, in fact, probably we just went into a line and measured all your arms from here to here. It's pretty much 18 inches. So this is the space between Paul and the soldier next to him. And there's a chain in between. I don't know if you're a person who likes privacy. Two years like that is no fun. I mean torturous. Night and day in that private lodging, Paul was shackled to a soldier with an 18-inch chain. He couldn't whisper a word without it being heard. These soldiers, on four-hour shifts, heard Paul preach, teach, advise, and pray. They saw him write letters to his churches. They saw how he handled two years of imprisonment. They spoke to him, in some cases became close to him, and in some cases turned to Christ. If you see uh, the, uh, the end of uh, the book of Philippians, it speaks of those in Caesar's household who had become Christians. Probably some of those were the soldiers. No doubt some of these soldiers came to Christ as they're spending time with this guy this far apart, four hours at a time. Now, what's really interesting, uh, look back at your text. You see the word really? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really or actually, you could translate that, served the advance of the gospel. The idea is this. The believers in the believers he's writing, the, the believers in Philippi, were thinking, well, Paul's in prison. I guess the gospel's kind of stopped moving forward now. Paul's ministry's over. He's been sidelined. Don't you hate that when you're playing, watching a football game and the best player on your team, quarterback, running back, whatever it is, is smashed in the first quarter and he's on the sideline and he's useless now. Useless! For the victory of this particular game, I don't watch football much anymore. But anyway, I used to hate when that happened. And with the Green Bay Packers, it happened way too often. Well, that's what the believers of Philippi are thinking. Paul is in prison. He's been sidelined. He's worthless now for the advance of the gospel. He's going to get nothing done for the whole time he's in that, uh, that private apartment under house arrest, 18 inches from a soldier. He's worthless. 
Well, by using this word, what has happened to me has actually served the advance of the gospel. Paul is saying just the opposite. You may think that me being in prison, my trial, what I'm suffering right now, and this was suffering for him, this was a trial for him, you may think that that sidelined me, but this has opened up new ministry doors. The gospel is advancing. By the way, that word advance, the, 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 the Greek term, means to, uh, uh, to move ahead in spite of obstacles. I think it's interesting, uh, it's a word chosen, an interesting word, chosen. Because I think the point is that God often turns obstacles to the gospel's progress into tools of its progress. That's exactly what's going on here. He's in prison. Oh, well, he's done now while he's there. No, this trial, this situation, this hardship, this situation of suffering is a tool God's using to advance the gospel in ways we never could have dreamed. God gave an imprisoned man. God gave an imprisoned man freedom to give the gospel to men who we never could have reached before. These are soldiers. And they're not just any soldiers. These are the, this, this is the cream of the crop. And when these men retire from the military, they're going to be the governors and the leaders throughout the Roman Empire. If you would have asked Paul, would you like to spend a little time with the future leaders of Rome? He would have said, oh yeah. How about two years? Oh yeah, I'd like that. Satan's chain freed Paul to preach to these future leaders. He's chained 18 inches, but he's free. Interesting, folks. Paul was not shackled to Rome's finest soldiers. They were shackled to him. He wasn't their captive. They were his for two years. And God arranged it this way. Uh, Paul goes on to say, verse 13, the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest. The idea is that the gospel, that he was able to minister to the soldiers, the gospel is advancing among the soldiers, and to others as well. How? Paul's stuck in this place. He can't get out. Probably the soldiers. Some of them are coming to Christ, and all the rest in Rome, many in Rome, are hearing the gospel from whom? Probably the soldiers. One commentary says, The chains that kept Paul confined, the chains that kept Paul confined, propelled the word about Jesus throughout the city carried by many messengers to many more people than Paul himself could have reached. Folks, God wants to use our trials and circumstances to advance the gospel. Trials, the bottom line is, trials are a God-given opportunity for ministry. We see that here in Philippians. God put him in this situation, and his ministry opportunities were huge. And he never would have had a shot at this if he'd have been free roaming around in whatever city, preaching, ministering. But this situation of trial put him in a situation where he could reach people he never could have reached before. Influential people. 
God is only going to give you so many trials. I know we don't think of it that way. But God's only going to give you so many. So if God's going to give you a million of them, 10 million of them, of various sizes and shapes and colors, you've already blown through a bunch of them. And maybe responded correctly to many of them, maybe not. But the bottom line is, whatever number it is that God's established you're going to get, you only have so many left. Don't waste any of them. Whatever trials you're facing, some of them are going to provide you with opportunities to meet people that you wouldn't have had an opportunity to meet otherwise. And other people are going to hear how you're responding to that trial, whatever it is. Don't waste those trials. Don't waste them complaining about, those, about the trial. Point to Christ in that trial. Use it, use it as an opportunity to minister the gospel to people who are going to go through similar trials, if not worse, than what you're going through. Don't waste them. By the way, look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What does that tell us? People, uh, other believers gained great courage by seeing what was going on with Paul. He's, he's imprisoned. His situation's not good. But he's serving. You know, I can do the same. So his trial encouraged, emboldened, gave new courage to other believers who now had renewed confidence in the Lord and they served God more faithfully. Realize that other believers are watching how you handle the trials. And they're going to be either encouraged or discouraged in their ministry during their trials. Use, use your trials as opportunities for ministry. And as you do that, God will use it, and other believers will see it, and they'll be encouraged, I need to do the same thing as I go through mine. Because we're all going to go through them, right? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We will suffer, folks, as Christians, as a means of spiritual growth. Suffering will help us grow. And in 2 Corinthians 12, we see that suffering will produce a humble dependence on the Lord. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul, God was revealing himself to Paul over and over and over. Like if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see that. And you can imagine the opportunity for pride there. God reveals himself to me. What about you? You can imagine the opportunity for pride. So, to keep me from becoming arrogant, conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to buffet me. And then he repeats it. To keep me from becoming conceited. So, it's clear why this thorn in the flesh is there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Please, God, take this away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we could spend hours in this text. Let's just point out three things, okay, about this thorn in the flesh. First, Paul makes it clear that Satan was involved. Satan was trying to use this form of suffering to torment Paul. Satan's involved. Secondly, from the flow of these verses, it's plain that God himself was the one who ultimately sent the thorn. How do we know that? Paul's not asking Satan, please take away this, this thorn in the flesh. Three times he's asking God. Why? Because ultimately, any trial in life, though Satan may be involved, any trial in life is there because God is either sending or permitting it. And so when we plead, we plead to God. Because only, only he can take it away. It's funny, I've spoken to Christians at different times who talk about how Satan is attacking them. And folks, the bottom line is that no matter what Satan's trying to accomplish, God holds Satan on a very short leash. Satan is God's lapdog. He does nothing without God's permission. And so sometimes God's permitting Satan to buffet. But we go to God because he's the one in sovereign control. Third thing we see in Paul's case here, God used suffering to keep Paul humble. To keep him from being conceited. Why? He needed to be humble. To stay humble. To be brought back to humility. To have a humble, reliant uh, relationship with the Lord. I rely upon the Lord. I'm dependent on the Lord. It's not about me. It's about Him. It's not about me and my greatness receiving revelation from God. It's about God and His kindness and grace. We have such a tendency toward pride and self-aggrandizement. We are so prone to rely upon ourselves and shut out God when it comes to what we're doing. And I, we know that. I mean, we all know this because how, often, how much time do you spend in prayer every day? If I said, how many of you think your prayer life is what it should be? Probably no hands, including mine, would go up. Because I th- we feel like I can accomplish what I need to accomplish without getting God involved. I mean, he's busy. So I'll, I'll just teach my Sunday school class and be, be a deacon and, and care for my children and, 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 and give my children the gospel and, and, and minister to other people in the church and minister to my neighbors and co-workers. And I, I don't need to pray much about that stuff because we think we can do it on our own. Sometimes personal suffering is the only thing that will cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord and rely upon His daily grace. Because when we start suffering, what do we do? We drop to our knees and we pray. Which we should have been doing all along, but because we're so proud, we don't. And so often, God sends trials to humble us and to communicate to us, you need me. And don't forget it. I'm not going to let you forget it. And here's one way I'm going to keep reminding you. Trials. Suffering like nothing else shows us how human and weak and unwise and limited we are. Suffering like nothing else causes us to to lift up our eyes to the Lord and beg for help. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Let me read those. 
Before I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I'm being afflicted, I obey your word. Affliction brought me back to obedience to God, is the psalmist's point. Verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Again, affliction, trial, suffering, difficulty is good for me because it causes me to seek the Lord and obey him. Suffering also produces spiritual strength and maturity like nothing else. Look at uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'll try and move through this quickly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By the way, the whole various kinds, many colors. It's the same, uh, the Greek term used in the Septuagint, as you find, uh, uh, same Greek term used in the Septuagint of Joseph's coat of many colors. So trials come in various sizes and shapes and colors, big, little, and everything in between. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of, of various sizes and shapes, degrees of difficulty, for you know Here's why. Because you know, this is why you count trials as opportunities for joy, because you know that the testing of your faith accomplishes something. It produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. This word steadfastness here in this context speaks of spiritual endurance and fortitude. The the testing of our faith forges us into warriors who are spiritually strong and steadfast in our Christian walk. It produces in us an unswerving spiritual endurance. Trials produce that. Note two other words. Perfect and complete. The word perfect speaks of spiritual maturity. The word complete means having every part. An adult may be mature, but may lack an arm. He doesn't have every part. So James uses this phraseology to communicate something. Trials test our faith to produce in us a spiritual endurance that will produce maturity and completeness. We have every part as far as our spiritual need, our spiritual walk. Suffering and trials are designed to produce a level of maturity that lacks nothing necessary for the Christian life, folks. You know, you look at this text and you have to say, if I don't have trials in my life, I'm not going to become a mature believer. That's what's clearly indicated here. Without trials, you might pray the prayer, God, please keep me from every trial in this life. Make my life just smooth and easy. If he answers that prayer with a yes, okay, you're going to be in spiritual diapers your entire life. Because trials accomplish something in our lives that an easy life doesn't accomplish. If you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to be complete in your Christian walk, there must be suffering. That's why he says, count it all joy. By the way, he doesn't say, rejoice. He doesn't say that. Rejoice in trials. He doesn't say that. He says, count it all joy. Reckon it. Reckon it. Counted a reason for rejoicing, an opportunity to rejoice because of what trials produce. He's not saying rejoice in the trial itself. He's saying rejoice in the fact that God will use it, if you respond correctly to it, in a way that is beneficial to us. We'll grow in the Lord. That's why we rejoice. 
All right, let's draw this to a close here. Suffering is part of the fabric of our world. Every person we know is going to experience toil, conflict, pain, physical hardships, tears, and death. Every person we know, they will and we will. It's just part of living in a sin-cursed world. There's a, there's a, for those who know Christ, there's a much better day coming. There's an infinitely better day coming. But while we're on this earth, trials and suffering is what we're going to face. But we should handle all those aspects of human suffering very differently than others do. People who don't know Christ are going to experience these kinds of sufferings. So are we. Same things. It's not that once God saved us, he said, oh, hey, I'll make life really easy for you from now on. You can coast from now on. And, uh, you know, at such and such an age, real quick heart attack, real easy. And until then, easy. And then death and then heaven. No, we're going to experience the same sufferings as everyone else in the world. But we need to handle them differently than they handle them. Because we know the one who controls every turn of human history, the one who who will use each trial for ultimate good. You know that. God's going to accomplish good things through this. And so we handle trials differently. We can rejoice, not for them, but in them, right, from James. And when we handle trials that way, when we handle trials in a way that pleases God, other people will notice Unsaved people will notice because you're going through the same stuff they're going through and you're going through it so much differently and they're going to be wondering what in the world is up with you? How can you do that? You know what's happening with my family and my children? I know that's happening with your family and your children or your finances or the trial you're facing or the word cancers in your life and I'm watching how you, the Christian, handle that word and that situation and it's so much differently than I would handle it What's the deal with you? How can you handle that word, that thing, the way you're handling it? And what does that give you? Well, let me tell you why. I know the one who controls every turn of history. And I know he's trying to accomplish something good. Let me introduce you to someone. Let me, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ for a minute. This is our opportunity. During trials are our opportunities. Again, don't waste them. If, you're, if we're self-focused during trials, we're going to waste them every time. Because it's all about me. When you suffer because of your stand for Christ, remember that you're following in the steps of the Savior. And you're following in the steps of other faithful believers throughout human history. You're not alone. Remember, uh, you are a member of an innumerable army of courageous, uncompromising believers led by the King of Kings. When you suffer, you are following them. One more thing. Count it joy. We need to learn to think of trials as a reason for joy and to rejoice in them and bring God glory in them. Thank you, Father, for these many texts. This is one of the ways we know, Lord. This is one of the ways that we can impact the world around us. Is simply by following your example. 
by being like Christ in our earthly struggles and trials of whatever type, general trials that everyone goes through or trials specific to believers, as we handle those things in a biblical way, as we handle those things in a way that will bring you glory, your name will be lifted up. And your name will be lifted up through the salvation of others, which we long to see. Thank you, Father. We do rejoice in what you accomplish through life's struggles. Please accomplish wonderful things with each trial. Don't let us waste them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.